the functionality of such a board, is it effective? Um, it's not decided by the board itself. So it, if the board is in more involved and also you have to know what's coming up. So I think for a board, managing what's already existing works quite well. But going yeah. in unsecure waters where you need the strong captains is something it's hard to do if you're not in the day-to-day -day business. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Goldcasting Podcast. Today we have a very interesting topic that is affecting everyone working in the foundry industry. And I think, Stefan, you have the perfect example to start with that and give us all of us an impression on what we are going to talk about. Thank you. Thank you, Fabian. Well, today's podcast is about do you have the right captains? Um, it might sound a little bit... Um, aggressive in a way but uh, please give me one minute to explain this we are going to speak of the chain of command in a company from the board of directors down to the the guys actually doing uh, the practical work and and how, how to find a headroom and and the reason why we're doing this podcast is from two ways in my experience first of all working in mid-size bigger companies smaller companies uh, you have your ideas about uh, the boss, the CEO, the CTO, uh, and the board. Lately, I have came across uh, a quite strange phenomenon in my daily work. Uh, I'm, I'm the sales and marketing guy for a company called uh, Comtech Reocasting. And we produce machines for reocasting. And, and uh, of course, novelty being a struggle, but now we are on a good path. And what is surprising me, is that it's not the customers you would expect that buy into reocasting, number one. But more surprising is the ones that are becoming quite successful are definitely not the big ones. And why is it this way? And of course, being the marketing and the sales guy, you have to think about these things because if you're selling good for, I can take a perfect example, our customer Dyna tool in Canada. Have you heard about Dyna tool, Fabian? I have heard about it, but probably just because I'm working with you a lot about Rio casting. But yeah. if you haven't worked with Rio casting, you've probably never heard of that company. They have bought machine number three and number four from us. They have four die casting machines during this spring equipped with Rio casting, not bought by speculation. Then you do the math. So, so. Then you start to think, what difference these people? Uh, now, the perfect example is a company called Feist. I have a Romanian foundry that is, I would say, the elite. According to their customers, this is the elite foundry that they, would, they like to, to work with. Uh, they are more sizable by far. And you have to put the question on the table to find other customers. Why is it this that they can take a decision, uh, it's moving along, it's very straightforward, it's a good technology understanding, and it kind of sprinkles through all the way in the company from the top to the bottom. The bottom is is more important, actually, because these are the guys we work with. But, but I think that, we have to dissect that section by section, and I think we should start by the top. We should start by the top, the board of directors. Exactly I, I, there. I, yeah. I mean, what is the board of directors? What is the main, main, main task for the board of directors actually in a company? If you start to think about it. The board of directors usually is the premium that supersedes the company, may mostly have the ownership of the company and giving the direction to the company. So... The CEO presents their his plans to or her plans to go forward, and then the board decides where to allocate the money, and then the CEO can run with the plan. So it's, it's it is a, a pretty important function long term wise in a foundry, right? Exactly. It's not in the day to day business, but it's the most important premium when it comes to strategic development of the company. Yeah, right. Uh, 
Now, dear Fabian, you, you're, a, you're a young guy. You drive an electrical car. Uh, I like my diesel. <laughs> and uh, you come from the well-organized country of Germany. Let me give you uh, an insight how it works in Sweden. Many small companies are family-owned. When they have a board of directors, it is normally grandpa who started the firm, very knowledgeable guy, knows everything in die casting, for example. Uh, then you have... Um, a retired accountant that has been a great help because, yeah, you know, he's good with numbers. Um, and that is pretty much it. It might be someone who helped out tremendously much that might be a small shareholder that actually sits in the board of directors. But that is more a honorable seat, I would say, uh, for, for many cases. Yeah, also like Now, that for many German companies, what they like to do is get some professor from a nearby university also in the board to have a more prestigious round. Yeah. Does it work? It works for the professor. He gets a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> Now I was thinking, the functionality of such a board, is it effective? Um, it's not decided by the board itself. So it, if the board is in more involved and also you have to know what's coming up. So I think for a board managing what's already existing works quite well. But going yeah. in unsecure waters where you need the strong captains is something it's hard to do if you're not in the day-to-day -day business and also see the industry changing every time. I totally agree. I, I throw in a, things, a couple of things that I think. I mean, first of all, we think, Fabian and me thinks that we are having a, a very different situation in the diecasting industry. Uh, it has been a linear growth from 1976 up to Dieselgate, and then it starts to deviate. If, if you don't believe me, uh, call a guy called, his name is Johannes Messer. Uh, he has some open uh, publications out there. Uh, interesting guy, great guy. He comes from the financial side of it. So, so he can show you the graph, how it started to deviate very much after Dieselgate, one thing after the other. Like a, Constant pace of changes that we have seen for the last 10 years, I would say. Given changes, what are we looking at for the board? Uh, mergers and acquisitions. Are we going to buy someone? Are we going to buy market? Are we going to buy technology? Are we going to do a heavy investment uh, together with someone else? Uh, size value. I'm not speaking about a new diecast machine. IP rights. Maybe you have actually done a development, you, you need to do something, you understood that the USP is actually a technology advantage somewhere. How should the company operate? In a day-to-day -day business, in a linear growth, no problem. Pushing 6% to growth rate, uh, stabilize the, the profits, these things are easy. But here comes the thing with it, where I have my biggest criticism. The board of directors' main thing is are actually two. One, to write the instruction for the CEO, and two, employ the CEO. If you're then are sitting in a, a small, mid-sized company in Sweden, and you have the honorable seat or the guy that helped them, you have the retired uh, bean counter, sort of my language, you have uh, the grandpa who actually still owns the <laughs> 75 to 95% of the stock, and you think about these things that I just said, okay, employing a CEO to handle this turmoil that we are in, How, how good recruitment do, they think, do you think they do? Yeah, it probably is the son or the daughter in the CEO position. And as long as there's no personal level fight, that person will stay CEO. But I think we have to dive in the changes we're currently seeing before we can dive deeper into the board. So one of the mm. major things you already talked about is Dieselgate. It's not the Dieselgate itself, but the consequences. So people moved away from diesel to gasoline to hybrid and now into electric vehicles. So the overall number of parts that are being used in powertrain, like the engines, that has gone down significantly. And a lot of small what does die, it mean? A lot of small die casting machines run out of work. And whole foundries run out of work because they don't deliver the parts that needed for to build the engine. Because an engine is like two or a whole car with a petrol engine is 2,000, 1,500 high-pressure die-casting parts. Mm -hmm. If you factor in part integration, so you make three big parts instead of 70 small parts, so that's one step below the mega-casting trend, then you still get another foundry, another few foundries out of work because the small structural castings go out of business anyway. 
So I yes. have to stop you there. I have to stop you there. Are Go you ahead. saying that under the radar of the mega castings that we all love to speak about, there's also movement of, of a free part integration into one? Exactly. So if you split a mega casting on the sides and have a middle section, you now have three parts that can be cast on 3,500, 4,400 ton machine, depending on your projected area. And that's machines that are widely available from the large foundry groups. So what you're saying is that this factor alone would cause changes where you have to have a very awake board of directors and you have to have a, a CEO that is, is moving from, how should I put it, linear growth to a stormy sea. Yep. So what we see is now linear decline. So usually if there's more demand than there's offer, the prices go down. And then you will see that with margins going down and down and down for new projects. But at the same time, your energy prices went up significantly. And then you're sitting with that board. I'm sorry, dear listener, but, but let's face it. Out of 100 um, uh, diecasting companies, how many do you believe is actually family owned up to eight to 10 diecasting machines, pretty regional with three major customers or two major customers or in worst case, even one? I most think they, of them they, in automotive. Most of them in automotive, especially to the tier ones, no. I would say. Uh, yeah, okay, so, so we have concluded one thing. The board of directors is to be seen as a great function or process for long-term securing in a changing world, right? Yeah, but when you go back to our C mythology, the board of director is the navigator. Ah. Giving directions for the captain where to steer the ship. That's almost like a corporate poetry, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> I, I think another thing that I saw, I, I don't know if this is true, but, but I think it's worth speaking about. I have some friends that are working in the UK. And this seems to be a regional thing that in the UK, the board of directors are more involved in the day-to-day -day business. They are actually participating in, you know, strategic mm -hmm. workshops. Uh, they are more stepping down, you know, from the, the conference room. And uh, if you have, for example, an IP right guy in, in your board of directors, he actually participates for once in a while in development meetings with the staff to understand what are we developing, what are the angles that we can see here. And then in the conference room, he can address these issues with the CEO saying, hey, you have actually something interesting here. That combination might be something that you actually can make a, a, into a patent. Yeah, yeah that, I, I that's think important. This is highly interesting. You're still detached from the day-to-day -day business, but yes. you gain a deeper look into the company. And I think that's important. That's a great example. I, I think that's interesting. And, and I know that we're going to, to get to some, some conclusions in the podcast, but, but the first conclusion that we can wash it away, I would actually check with my board of directors is if this is a viable viable thing because if you look at it what do they get now they get power points if they're not the old uh, bean counter because then they get an excel file yeah. how should you actually feel the soft things around an excel file or i mean then it's too late exactly when you, you see, see the excel the file it's too late and also if you're not Within the industry, you're just meeting once every quarter, have a discussion, mm -hmm. see some PowerPoints, people presenting you some polished results or whatever. Mm -hmm. How do you get a real truth view in the future? You're just jumping, to jumping yeah. from quarter to quarter and you don't have an overall picture. I mean, I've been there, in a, uh, uh, you know, as a CEO, 10 years of my life. And, and when you have the board of directors, these were listed companies. I mean, you didn't really say anything that was too critical or, or worrying, right? Exactly, because at the end, you want to have your compensation, you want to keep your job, and then yes. you don't make worry them too much. Yeah, maybe a little bit spoiler alert. I was actually fired from one of them, so <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it happens. So truth is one thing that is lost here, but we just bypassed the thing. Reactive or active. If you read the PowerPoints, if you read the quarterly reports, if you if you if you steer the company by looking at okay the achievement of the last three months, you get terribly reactive. 
So when the crisis comes, you have, in worst case, lost a half year. Yeah, that's what I wanted to point out. You're not just reactive, you're also reactive with a long time delay. And here comes my third thing. You have no clue who is behind the PowerPoints and the, the Excel files if you don't go down and use the UK model a little bit more. I mean, you have seen them, they, they made presentation 50 minutes about uh, new product development or, or whatever in some board meetings. I mean, most, most people have a calendar for the board which is pretty smart. I mean, you have the budget season, you have uh, marketing and sales stepping down to it and through the year. But I had never been in a position where they actually stepped into the room while we did this market strategy. I think that would be useful. Speaking about anchoring decisions. Yeah, especially getting an unfiltered view of the company. If you uh, have a sitting in a board meeting and uh, CSO presenting their developments, How do you know how valid it is? Does this guy actually believe in it? Oh, do they believe that point. they have the new product to Eurogas, for example? Do they believe it? <laughs> Or is it just how much beer do we have to order for our booth? Yeah, yeah. if everyone is drunk, they don't see that the, the program is a script. That I learned in the software industry. <laughs> <laughs> so... Now, we have been idling around this. Let's guess now that we have a, a really nice board of directors. Uh, they have been picked to, to, to work with this. So maybe you have different functionalities. You, you might have someone that knows everything about patents. You might bring in someone for change management. Uh, you try to steer away from automotive into telecom. Hey, why not a guy from Ericsson Nokia, someone that actually knows this industry and so forth. Then comes another thing. Why are people not afraid of changing the board of directors? I mean, if you think that this crisis, for example, we have a downturn in the economy right now. And if you are having a daring plan and say, yeah, but in three years, we are going to be, you know, non-automotive foundry, blah, blah, blah. Why being afraid of having someone in the board of directors for three years only? And then say, thank you very much. You did a tremendous job. But now we're in steady state. Now we need more bean counting. We need something else. So, so we will uh, say thank you for now. We hope that we can call you again if we, we run into something similar. Yeah, yeah, that would be something amazing. But at the end, who's in the board is mostly decided by the majority shareholders. Yeah. If, if they don't want to have that change, that's not going to happen because they have the voting rights. They have the ownership of the company. But depends if they have a company in a few years still existing or just an empty title. Yeah. That leads me into my favorite subject now, this shareholder value. What is shareholder value? There are two things here. Either a nice steady profit, it's, it's like a salary that comes every year, you know, the dividends, great. But growth is actually a stronger way if you are to sell your company. You can go with 0.1% of, of a profit. You can easily defend a loss a year due to heavy investments and a lot of resources spent if there is a growth. Exactly. And also with growth, you have to lay the foundation. And usually doing something new requires you to spend some money on it because there will be one, two, three, four, five things you have to buy to start out and some things will go wrong. And you have to spend Definitely. time on it. And that's something that costs money. And if you take out the money, if you, can, if you have a steady business, that's not going to change. Something if you like in the food industry, because crisis coming, going, you still need to buy your food. That doesn't matter for you. But if you're in a foundry business delivering to automotive, people don't buy cars if there's a crisis coming and they're not sure if they're going to have their salary next month or not. Exactly. I was a purchaser once, and when you step into a, a casting supplier, regardless if we're speaking about Italy, Germany, Spain, whatever, we were pretty European, right? And everybody who, who made some nut or 100 gram of aluminum to Porsche had it on display. But the thing, yeah, Porsche might be a bad example, or BMW or Daimler, some of the nice cars, right? But but who is suffering first if, if the, the times are bad? Porsche, mm, there are wealthy people that were still wealthy, but the middle class, they will start to shrink the budget for a new car. They will, they will actually start to look for a Skoda or a Volkswagen instead of buying that nice BMW, right? Yeah, definitely. Especially with also the users of the car changing. For mm. us, it's important to have a 
certain engine, certain horsepower, and a certain look to it. If you see the younger generation that stick to their phone, for them it's important. Does it have Apple CarPlay? Does it have Android Auto? Or what are, are the you, uh, what are the are electronic you sales for Tesla now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but I would love to be sponsored. <laughs> no, just so kidding. So Elon Musk, if you hear this. Please call us, but not before seven o'clock, because then we're walking the dogs are sleeping. But we would love to do some sponsoring for Tesla. Uh, feel free, we'll give you a discount. Yeah. Okay, so we have a good board of directors. Uh, they understand the shareholder value. Uh, they are picked in a very intelligent way because there's a plan here. Five years, this is what they're going to do. We're not afraid to fire in them uh, for hiring them back if we need it as well. They need to buy a CEO. Who should they pick? Yep, that's the next thing. So the CEO is there, like it's called executive. So he's the one doing the, well, navigating the ship towards the direction the board is giving them. Or holding the axe. Yep. So he has to get everybody in line to do the left turn, to do the right turn. And depending on the waves, you also have to readjust your course from time to time and see who's properly working to help you get the ship to this target or who's mm -hmm one making the holes to get water in and that leads us to the one million dollar question what should be the profile and here we can only speculate right yeah. uh, but, but i think but the I, most I, important I, thing is the cso has the two the two big things oh one big one small thing the big thing is to steer to overall company and the small thing to go to the desk say hey happy birthday great that you're here These are the most important thing a CEO has to do because these yeah, do make an impact. If we, if we, let, let's scratch a little bit. I mean, I, I survived a few CEOs and, and someone also fired me again. I'm humble today. Uh, but how much influence does a CEO have and what make, makes the influencing power higher or lower? So it's I think we should stay on this for yeah. a minute. I think it's definitely clear that the CEO isn't the one doing everything. So he has to coordinate the people running the things. And he is the one managing. So ha having a look that everything goes in the right direction. And then his power becomes, at the end, the quality of the people below him. Here I would argue a little bit, not with what you said. I will jump back to that board of directors. If people feel that there is a plan to make this company or continue to be an interesting workplace with a stable salary, people will take that extra step. They will walk the extra mile. If they feel that board of directors are firing the CEO every 24 months, every second year, we have a new guy. We hear those stories. Uh, then people get reluctant. They do the business. They, they, they are more loyal to, to the friends in the workplace. Uh, they're polite to the CEO and they listen and then they act as they always done. Changing exactly. that company will be super, super difficult. That, that CEO is a CEO for trade fairs and big accounts. Yeah, be probably lost from the start. You can see yeah. with many football clubs, they have like 20 trainers in the last 10 years. Yeah, The, the people or the players, they don't really listen because it's just for short term. Why do what I want and whatever. Yeah, and you can you can argue that Zlatan Ibrahimovic is more a character than we are in the foundry industry. But hey, go to the coffee room and discuss with the guys and you'll find very unique, talented people in that coffee room. Uh, I mean, just look at the hobbies, what people mm -hmm. are doing. I, I was um, discussing with a guy in the foundry industry who was doing, what do you call it, when you jump from a cliff in the Alps and you have this squirrel suit. Wings suit uh, diving or yeah, something. So yeah, so you kind of fly, free yeah. flying, you know, with a, some strange suit and, and you, you try to find somewhere to land and then you hope that this small, small, small parachute actually says poop and you, you land without breaking your leg or getting killed. And, and he is a super technician. I, I never believed it. If I would have guessed, I would have said, yes. So, so people have talents and the CEO has to get a little bit of that energy and that talent working their way. And if the board of directors is saying, hey, here's your new playmate, he will be here for probably a long time, but all of the others will fired every second year. But this yeah. is the long-term solution. No one will buy in. Yeah. So we have a good CEO. He has the backing. 
the guys from the board are stepping down. They are actually participating like in an R&D conference or a strategic mm-hmm. workshop about change. They are together with the CEO sometimes, you know, having lunch with the crew, uh, nodding when they see the PowerPoints about the traveling that we're doing five years from now. Then the CEO has his most important topic and task, according to me, and that is to create a leadership team. That's definitely the most important thing, just to have the leadership that is divided into certain topics, usually production, sales, finance, technology. And and that now it's the most important thing because we're missing one person, the yeah. one person in the lookout. Stefan, your favorite position, name it. Yeah, marketing and sales. <laughs> <laughs> no, just marketing, the marketing person, the salesperson we already have. Yeah, but now you have an easy task because you're an engineer and you speak about that, those and the stress train curves and all that interesting things. Uh, they are definitely interesting, but but I'm going to be a little bit bold here. It's the sales guys that are putting the bread on the table. Yeah, you don't make the money with talking for hours about atoms or stress train curves. You lose the money there, but you don't make it. Yeah, or yeah, I think it's a symbiosis, but but... I mean, if the stress strain curve isn't the way the customer wants and you get the parts back, then you lose the money. Yeah, so I, I think one cannot live with, with, with the other. I mean, that's that's pretty clear. But <clears throat> and now, dear listeners, maybe I'm rude to you guys now. Uh, I know that you think that you have the most important job ever, uh, being working sales. But here comes my observation after working with, what, 50 or 100 foundries. Manager, marketing and sales is a very nice title for a little bit more advanced administration role to the customers. Let me explain why. I hear that they are actually sitting in in so many meetings when it comes to, you know, the new forecast. Uh, It could be a product change. Some wall and that structural casting is to be changed and that will affect the price. And then into all this game, you know, with a cost modeling and all these things. And and some of these guys that I actually know and work with, they like to speak about real casting and they do it in the car going home after a working week on Friday, three o'clock. There's no lookout here. There's no time for reading through, you know, the lingo of uh, solar panel industry to understand that there's a super interesting part to be found here. They don't have the time and, and, and they squeeze together some broad message that we are unique and then they go to Eurogas with a new brochure. They're not stupid. They're not untalented. What I'm saying is they don't have the time. So here comes my thing. When the CEO is looking at this, at this role or even on the technology side, you have to divide between day-to-day business and what to cast in two years. This is super important for me. So no one should accept to have the title marketing manager, marketing and sales. It should be a manager marketing that could contain the future programs and a manager sales. And manager sales is that youngster or, or he and she is actually, you know, they, are, they have total control of the forecast. They know about the product revisions. They know about the changes. They know about everything that is affecting from yesterday's order and yet not delivered to two years from now. Exactly. So you know which series coming up, how far is the development process, where you need new tools, which one you have to build to your customer and so on and so forth. But coming back to the marketing guy, so he's the one on the lookout. He has to decide what to do. So many automotive founders will say, hey, we know what's going to happen. We have one series that's running for seven years. And afterwards, there's the next series coming. Mm-hmm. What's there's wrong no with that? <laughs> there's no torpedoes in the water. There's no torpedoes in the water. And then you hear that all of a sudden, someone just kills a platform. I mean, we're seeing this. Your know, platform right? doesn't sell. Yeah, we have this. Com- There's a company somewhere around Wolfsbury, and and they have stopped the production of ID3, ID4. Is it two times now? I think two or three times this year. Yeah. Yeah, and if you're surviving with that car model, good luck. Go to Ibiza the first time, and the second time you go to to Thailand, and the third time, what do you do? You get worried. Definitely. Also, it's quite a strong dependency on the automakers to give you equal work and especially now with 
crisis coming up, at least in Germany, mm. that thing's going to be impacted if it's the car sales in a few months. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we, have we, to... we can we can go close to that argumentation for a long time, but but do you agree that you have to split the manager marketing and sales into two roles? Yeah, definitely, you need one in the day to day business, and the other one in the lookout to see which industries are in, coming up, where's an expansion, and then have a, as we said it earlier, in a smaller pool of high mix, low volume products to yeah. damp and to... the volatility. Yeah, and I mean it. It goes with the quality of decisions, and the the further out you look, the longer in the future you look, the more uncertain you get. And if you try to make a a long term commitment or long term decision to 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 move and to invest for a new market area, uh, I mean, you cannot be stressed because the natural reaction of at least among the people I know. It's, it's better to say no then, because otherwise, I mean, I, I don't have time to do the work anyway. I hear it all the time. So quality of decision is, is actually the one point you should not say money on right now. Yeah. Also, having the right people, again, to circle back to the seven levels, mm. spending money to have the right people, that's crucial. Yeah, I, I, can, I can make an analogy to, to R&D managers. Big companies, they, they, they tend to have two different roles here where they have a technology provisioning role with people only looking five years ahead. They're, they're trying. If you take telecom, for example, the frequencies are going up, pharma connectivity mm-hmm. is a problem. You have a group of guys and they can spend a few work years uh, just looking at the question how to build our product in five years because of energy, right? Yeah. And then they have development managers. They have an office called the project office and the project office is just ding, 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 out with the project. Supporting the projects, trying to solve problems in the projects on top level. They're, they're like the board of directors of, of projects. I think if you scale that down a little bit and think a little bit outside the box, you can find ways to actually create a, a virtual technology feasibility organization. You can use, I don't know, exam works from university to have a couple of students to look into different casting methods. You can maybe use someone younger that is not that colored and not that home blind when it comes to, I don't know, venting tools, new spray systems, whatever you actually need. Because you as the development manager, are probably pretty stuck in trying to follow the spe- specification <laughs> creep from the automaker. Yeah. Which is also super important because you can lose your company on a specification creep. Absolutely. But also you have to be, like you said, out of your day-to-day business, not being home blind to see what's beyond the horizon. Or maybe it's not see it. Maybe it's estimations and you do five, six estimations and then you try to go in the direction and after a while going, you will see which one turns out to be the pot of gold and which one is just an empty hole. Yeah. But you have to I go mean, in that direction to readjust your course. Everybody that has been haunted by an automaker or a tier one worst case knows there's very few days in that working week where you can shut off the telephone and actually think about five years from now. It, it takes a character that most of us doesn't have. Also, you need to be creative. And if you have all the things in your mind, what you have to do the next day, you can, even if you manage to shut off your phone, you're still somewhere invested in your problems that you will face on Monday again. Yeah. So coming back to it, now now some of, some of our listeners are, are thinking like, yeah, they're dreaming, they're dreaming. I mean, we don't have 10 million euros in our bank account. Uh, we, we cannot do this. We, we cannot afford to have that kind of board of directors. We cannot afford to have these future looking guys. But dear listener, if you're sitting in that, take some time and, and listen to the podcast with Anna Jorfors, the professor about uni- university collaboration, for example. It, it might be that you as a small company has, a, has more promising ways to find different ways of actually getting this information. Also, because- um, if you're just a smaller ship, it's way easier for you to navigate and turn. In comparison yeah. to a cruise ship, you need towboats and whatever to turn. As a small ship, you can do it on your hand. 
coming back to the Dyna tool in the beginning, right? I mean, yep. if you're filling four machines in one and a half year, who actually did that? Have you heard anyone? New uh, business, four machines. Have you heard anyone doing that? Within one and a half years, no. No. Not, that's crazy, especially if you get it also successfully running and then mm. convincing your customers that it's the greatest way to go. Yeah. And? And? And you can say, yeah, but then they have some special customers. Oh, no, they are a high mix, low volume guy. I mean, they have automotive, they have telecom, they have general industry, they have, uh, yeah, the spread is is crazy. But but anyway, anyhow. There's one more difference. That, yeah. And, that's, and, and, and that guy is flying to Europe in December, spending a week with us and customers, of course, customers number one, flying back, having Christmas, coming back, Eurogas. How many CEOs or marketing managers have you heard that actually spend that much time on future questions? Uh, probably not too many. Probably not too many. If, if you look at future questions, you have a computer. Everybody has a computer. There is Google on the computer. In most cases, if you're not living in China, uh, Russia could be a little bit mm, like that also. But, but in, in, in the free world, the Western world or Hollywood, whatever you like, you can Google around for an hour, get some ideas, take them down on a note, call the local university, ask for students that, especially in business, I would say, that would like to do like a market research or, or something. You have those uh, crazy combinations of finance and engineering, for example, yep. at least here in Sweden, industrial economy, industrial economy. I mean, these guys, they, 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 they go many, 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 many steps. To, to make a nice report because yeah. that's the shit for them to start a career. Especially and, if and you I mean, do it something like um, final thesis, you have yeah. a, one motivated to 110% to get it finished. And then you also have an impact on their work and you get a report about an industry you never heard about. Yeah, and they probably have a higher analytical and, and academical level than 80% of your employees. They are but, not within your organization, they don't really know what you did the last 20 years. No, no, they, they will put the, the, the foot in the mouth, as the English say, uh, several times because they don't know that, uh, I don't know, your project manager hates everything else in A380 or, or something like that. But they don't have that argument that's stopping and slowing them down because they're healthy detached. And, and this is my whole point. And then you realize, yeah, we have to do a technical thing called the university. There are so many development checks, different fundings for SMEs, which means small and medium-sized foundries, small yeah. and medium-sized enterprises. I'm sorry, dear listener, but uh, I think it's easier proportional-wise for a small organization to, to get a really good help. I mean, if you're Neomag, for example, and you try to call and say, hey, I would like to have a couple of guys for free for making this. And then everybody says, but you're that big, you can afford it. It's 0.01% of your turnover. Please do. Yeah. But also another thing you can do is if you want to try out something like a new spray system, call your supplier, say, hey, uh, do you have something you would like to try because we have run into issues and these are the things. Mm. Do you want to try something with us together? Rarely someone says no. So, hey, if you get the possibility to try something new, they also want to get into the market. And then mm. again, you are the first one. Mm. You have the advantage. Yeah. And here comes another thing. Another example why you should divide the, the marketing and sales manager into two pieces. Uh, I, I, I mean, this sustainability thing. Uh, again, I'm a hunter. I love nature. I like to go out there and then I do stuff often involving that someone ends up in my freezer. But point is, we have, I'm speaking about my work again, we're running something called the Sustainable Casting Group. And in this group, we have people from ABB, Ericsson, Atlas Copco, blah, 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 Makia, for example. And we have learned a tremendous lot. The thing is, the ones that are interested in your product, if in this case, being able to cast sustainable, they are not the same people. So, so it doesn't matter if you if you hire the best sales guy in the foundry industry, 
he still has to learn, you know, the lingo. How 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 they're speaking? They're speaking about things like mm. scientific-based targets, uh, KPI or sustainability. They speak about CBAM. They speak about total different ways. And all of a sudden, yeah, there's a part somewhere in the discussion. But then it's more, how can you third-party certificate your own foundry? What mm. kind of investments do you need to become that supplier? And and. I'm dead serious now. I hear from these, no one mentioned, no one forgotten, that they cannot actually offer their equipment to some big firms in the US if they don't have this in place. We're speaking about this customer making the, yeah. the machine, right? Exactly, and that's and, something you have to go to a potential new customer and listen to them, what they are needing from you to be a supplier yeah. and not just yeah doing what you always did and waiting for an email to the new part is uploaded on the portal. Yeah, or in the worst case, you actually go there and you, you get an appointment and and all of a sudden you you sit there and say, yeah, we are a super founder. We got 48 Bühler machines. And the guy on the other side of the table, he, he doesn't know the brands of a diecasting machine. He just wants to understand if you're fulfilling the sustainability targets to, to pass along for the RFQ at all. Take telecom, for example, we have we have a full episode of this. We have an interview upcoming with a guy working telecom for many years. And and how many automotive founders have tried to become telecom suppliers and failed? Because they have the wrong people, because they, they are more into this. It's like playing Monopoly, you know, uh, there is a, P, a sample, a B sample, a PPAP sample. And, 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 and two years after the platform starts and everybody goes like, Oh yeah, and in comes the torpedo, the second source from China, and then it's a battle again. I, I mean, so, so this is the argument why you need to divide your people. And again, you don't need to employ all these people. You just need to put someone to start to look at it. I mean, if you do an exam work uh, and, and take one of these students, they spend half a year digging out who is hurting most from sustainable requirements. And you will get a list with yep. the industry and the biggest players. And also, then if, go if that person is really good in his what he's doing, you also solved your recruitment problem. Yeah, exactly. So, so <clears throat> I, again, I mean, ignorance can be a bliss, right? Yeah. I uh, love ignorance. That's keeping me alive. <laughs> <laughs> is this dangerous? No, I don't think so. And then you go, ah, ooh, it was. Mm. But <laughs> I mean, when it comes to business life, you, you actually have some responsibility for, for, for the people you hire if you're the owner. Yep. Exactly. It's so, hard It's hard to have one eye beyond the horizons and one on your footstep. You don't see the middle thing and you have to focus. So everybody mm. has his focus areas. And if you divide it up, that's something mm. that will get you ahead. I, mean, I think oh, I got a feeling that we in Europe has lost it. I actually got this feeling. Yeah. No, Fabian, you have this super triangle that you use in your daily work and, and you, you pretty often refer to it. And now we're actually getting into some, some real material and stuff here. Uh, but, but we're trying to avoid everything in, in Europe now. We're, we're giving it up. Yeah. Look at the signs. Yeah, especially when you see how many EVs are made in China, as you had it like 10 years earlier. You couldn't mm -hmm. really buy these cars or if you have a look at them, They crashed like bicycles and the engine wasn't really running smoothly. Now we don't have an engine anymore. We have an electric motor. That's something that has been built in China for decades, not for automotive, for other things. And the advantage is now gone. Yeah, but the thing is, if, if, you, if, if you look at the development cycle, if we have stuck with diesels, there'd probably be better diesel machines from Shanghai right now. Yeah, there's also the last I saw a cartoon and it was a car show. They saw some European car and then another car, very spacious, flying around. And one sales manager said, yeah, one, yeah but they have an issue with the panel gaps. <laughs> yeah, but that's exactly. <laughs> Still, your car doesn't bar fly. Barking in the first, yeah, barking in the first episode that I had a euro for everybody bullshitting about the Tesla castings that would be driving a Porsche. I still believe that. Uh, <laughs> and, and again, uh, Porsche, if you want to become a sponsor after this free ad, <laughs> feel free to call us. You don't have to send the money, just put the cars there. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I promise to take a picture before it's dirty as well. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, but let's get serious. Fabian, you, you're chasing me sometimes with a triangle. I kind of love this triangle. Uh, could you spill the beans for our, our listeners? So what we are talking about is nothing new that we invented. That's something that's well studied for different teams and everything. And if you look at an organization, it's shaped like a triangle. But there's another one that says if the team is working or it's not working. And the foundation to that is trust. And for trust, if, for example, let's go back to the top, our CEO says something, we're going to do this and it doesn't follow through. He loses the trust and the team is not functioning. The next step is the one that surprised me the most. That thing is the avoidance of conflicts. So if you don't carry out the conflicts and discuss them, mm. that's something that your organization will fail. So if you're too hierarchical and you cannot discuss everything with the top, you're very likely to fail. Can, can I make a comment there? Sure. Isn't that the main theme in those books, uh, uh, The Rise and Fall and uh, Too Big to, to Fail, and, and those books that everybody was reading at the beginning of the 90s? I'm sorry, you were in school then maybe, but these were the books to read, you know. It was two American mm -hmm. studies with, with, I think, Harvard was involved pretty deeply. And one of the conclusions was that in successful companies, especially in changes, there's a very, very high level of noise. It's yep. discussions, arguments, and all that to bring the best ideas to the light and developed idea. Exactly. In many companies, usually it's the other way around, that the ones that are noisy are the employees that have to be the first one on the fire list because they don't follow our guideline. No, they're exactly fully engaged there but they see some problems there and want to engage in it and push it to the best solution. And if you see that wrong, then you hire the wrong people. Exactly. So you need to have trust. You need to be able to discuss things. But what is the next ladder? The next ladder already spoiled is the engagement. If the engagement is missing, then you're not have the working organization. For example, if you do change, you have to have that conflict. You have to solve them. And you have people working in your organization, engaging them, making their own sub-targets from your overall line. Because then if they make their own sub-targets, we are now in the second from the top level already. And then they're also responsible for them. Let's say... Uh, responsibility. Let's go, oh. for example, the purchasing process. Your purchase say, oh, we have to buy this die casting machine because that's 25% cheaper than the one you wanted. What do you think the people working on the machine say? We wanted that one because it had these or these advantages. They're going to make it fail. But if you buy the more expensive one, say, hey, this one is 25% cheaper. You have to get out these other 25% because we give you that machine, but you have to get it working. You have to care about it. That machine is cleaned every Friday. But I, I, I need to circle back a little bit, taking responsibility. I, I mean... You have different layers here. You have the responsibility for for the day-to-day -day business, the project at hand, the things at hand. But you also have the long-term thing. And the long-term thing here could be many things. I mean, for example, if you're my age or a little bit older, you have to start to think that, yeah, in five years I'm retiring. Who's going to be my successor? And, and, and daring to have that discussion that, yeah, I'm going to spill now more and more time and uh, blah, blah, blah with this individual because I'm too responsible. We need a too responsible even after 2030. And that could be one of the questions. And, and, and if you don't have these steps, you will probably protect your area. And you don't give a rat's ass what happens the day after you retire, right? Exactly. Also... Even if you have the sales position for 20 years, maybe there's something you want to try new. And then you have someone put in line that learns everything there is now because it's working well. And then you can transition into a new position or whatever and follow your new inspiration, whatever. There's so many things changing within years of years in a company. But if that's also not possible, it's quite hard. But let's come to the top. And now... That's a point from the top of the pyramid, and I have to call it the pyramid of Patrick Lencioni. So it's something that's researched. 
and the top of the pyramid is also the top in the organization that has to come from. It has to be the orientation for results because oh. you have to deliver the results. And if you don't have a result that you cannot influence, but it's you're measured by it, it's mm. very disengaging and creates a dysfunctional team. Now, now, now one gets a lot of ideas, right? <laughs> There's a lot of uh, things to discuss afterwards yeah. with your organization. Yeah. I make a statement. It is probably 100 times faster to swing around a small organization if you have a problem in the organization. If, if you follow this through now, I mean, we started on the top, shareholder interest. Yeah, okay, that's a family. They make a wise decision. They get a, a really good board. They put in a CEO. And being a CEO of 50 or 100 people is, is probably much easier when it comes to change management than having 5,000. Probably. Uh, also, what, from the yeah, board, usually what, what, with what, these what, large organizations, if they are stock listed, then you have to do everything publicly, go to the shareholder meetings, present it, and it takes way more time. And you have many more people that just want to have the continuous dividends instead of an organization that wants to survive. Because if yeah. this organization goes down, they sell the stock. Yeah, but my, my conclusion would be the following. In a very ever-changing world where we have this turmoil in the diecasting industry, the winner might be a smaller organization. And here comes, I, I kind of knit this together with my intro. Who is most successful in real casting? Well, the guys that went under the radar that actually has this in place. Right. I mean, JC Tavil, what, what kind of stop does he have? Five people. Yep. You have to be more a businessman from time to time than a technical guy. Because if you want to have the success, it's not one thing or one technical innovation. Buying the machine doesn't make you successful. Getting yeah, the people involved. Involved. Showing my academic feathers a little bit here. I mean, we had two guys fighting each other in in in, in uh, how do you call it? National economy with the big economy, uh, Schumpeter and Keynes, right? And Schumpeter was the guy from Austria that was speaking about creative destruction, and his belief system was that in every change, there's a gap somewhere. So so yes, big corporations suffer, but there's always some guys that take advantage of this shift. There's always winners. Yeah. The question is, should it be you or someone else? I would recommend be in line to be the winner. And I think that's a perfect ending for today's episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We're so happy. We're getting more and more comments. It feels more and more. I don't know what you say, Fabian, but uh, it feels like it community was now. Yeah, and it was a hobby project that is now materializing into like a dialogue with with men of you. And uh, we, we're happy to 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 have you. And especially, we we are now interviewing people. Uh, the, the ambition here is that every second episode would be an interview with interesting people. Again, no technology. We're speaking money, new markets, profits. And who do you want to sit see sitting in a chair discussing with us? And what kind of topics do you want to see? Just send us a line, text us make a remark on LinkedIn, whatever, we would be so grateful. And again, we're grateful that you're listening. That was a little bit emotional, I know. But, yeah. uh, but for the people listening all to the end, I think it's worth it. And again, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. And we hear us in the next one. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.